My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Muhammad Ali, the socialist vocalist. According to today's guest, the majority of social movements, progressive organizations, and grassroots groups, at least in English-speaking Canada, don't do enough to engage with and support the arts. It's not entirely clear why this is the case. You can look to North American social movements of the past, like the labor radicals in the early 20th century or the 1930s, the black freedom struggle across many generations, or all manner of movements in the 1960s, and you can see vibrant scenes of musical, theatrical, and artistic creation that were either integrally part of movements or existed in rich dynamic relation with them. Whatever the reason for the widespread lack of movement engagement with the arts in more recent decades, Ali is keen to help change things. Ali moved to Canada from Mauritius as an eight-year-old. Growing up in small-town Ontario, he faced intense racism, and the hip-hop he started listening to was one of the first things that he encountered that allowed him to start making sense of that experience and gave him language to talk about it. He'd been writing poetry since he was in grade school, and after his family moved to Toronto when he was 16, he started hanging around with some other kids who not only listened to hip-hop, but performed as well. He started freestyling, writing songs, and dreaming of being up on stage. Political hip-hop had already started to shape his ideas about the world, along with reading things like the autobiography of Malcolm X. As he grew older, he read more and more, and in particular, it was reading Che Guevara's diaries that most inspired him. So much so, in fact, that he took off to Cuba in 2004 and lived there for the majority of the next two years, hanging mostly with a hip-hop crew in Havana and sometimes performing with them as well. When he moved back to Canada, he plunged into both making music and into organizing. In those years, his political work was particularly focused on the Canada-Haiti Action Network, and on the War Resisters support campaign. He put out an album and did a national tour for the War Resisters, but over the next few years, the largest part of his time and energy was consumed by activism and organizing. It was about five years ago when he realized that, while he still wanted to participate in activism and organizing, he really wanted to prioritize his art. He found some solid mentorship and really focused on honing his craft. After lengthy discussions with other artists, friends, and comrades, he committed to a project grounded in people's experiences of work. Labor of love, he called it. The album has been done for a couple of years, but its release was held up by financial concerns. He has also developed various theatrical pieces and visual art as part of that project, and the album is set to be released in fall of 2018. He's hard at work on new material for a project he calls Protest Music, and he's gearing up for a cross-Canada tour to support the Labor of Love album starting in September. And as for what movements need to do to better engage with the arts, including with music, Ali has a few ideas. On the one hand, he says that things are better than they were ten years ago. More groups and organizations are interested in incorporating performers into their events, and more of them realize that they need to pay performers for their work. 
While that's good, it isn't enough. He says that we need to get beyond just a token performance and a check for the artist as the gold standard, and begin really having a conversation about a much more profound kind of integration of music and arts into struggles for social justice. This has to mean creating more opportunities for artists to participate in and contribute to movements. It means recognizing that lots of artists support movements even when their own work is not explicitly political, and creating opportunities to take part in movements that work for them. It means recognizing that often the people who make decisions in movement contexts do so from a pretty narrow conception of what grassroots politics should look like, and broadening that. It means, most of all, recognizing that music and the arts shouldn't be regarded as an add-on to movements, but as integral to them, as a key way to convey ideas, to popularize issues, to spark conversations, to give voice to experiences of oppression, and to build consciousness, all in ways that will reach people in a way that yet another long speech at a rally never will. To begin moving in that direction, he encourages people to start where they already are. The next time your group, union, local, collective, or organization is planning something, be the person at the table who raises the question of how to make music and art part of it. I spoke with Ali about his trajectory in grassroots politics and in music, and about the changes he would like to see in how social movements engage with the arts. Mohamed Ali, the socialist vocalist, at Socialist Hip Hop on all social media, socialist MC, organizer, artist. Yeah, that's what's up. I was always writing poetry in grade school and really got into hip-hop culture because I came to Canada when I was eight years old from Mauritius, small little island off the coast of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean in Africa. Very multiracial in Mauritius. Came here and experienced a lot of bullying and it was really messed up. And I didn't fully understand what was happening and gave me a lot of like, you know, self-esteem issues just because you're literally getting jumped and getting names called at you and snowballs thrown at you and getting spat on. And you're in grade school, right? So it's kind of messed up. It's also, I didn't understand why other than, hey, you know, I'm obviously not a good human being because people are telling me that stuff. And then I ran into one public enemy, specifically the music video, Brother's Gonna Work It Out, where it's them highlighting racial profiling and racism in the music video. And the music video is, you know, a lot more accessible to me as someone who was much younger and didn't have the critical analysis skills, but also reading Malcolm X's autobiography and seeing what he went through as a young person and the racism that he experienced in multiple small towns. And I was growing up in Newmarket, Ontario, which Newmarket in the late 80s, early 90s was very racist and very white. So was reading Malcolm's autobiography, watching the Public Enemy music video, really kind of being like, whoa, this is not my fault. What's going on right now is these kids are racist and that's messed up. So that's how I got into hip hop. After that, it was all KRS-One, Jay with the Damager, Nas, like, because hip hop really helped explain to me at first what I was experiencing as a child, but moving forward, everything else that was going on in the world around me as a young adolescent. So like I said, I was always writing poetry when I was in grade school. In high school, I moved to Toronto, North York, when I was 16. Started hanging out with some dudes who rapped, so we would always hang out. And the homies freestyled, so I tried to freestyle a little bit. I was writing songs, going to shows, you know, and like going home, writing a song, like imagining if I was the person on stage, that I would spit. But all that, just, you know, very much as a hobby kind of thing. And then in 2004, I had read all of Che Guevara's diaries, and the one that really stuck out to me was his Cuban Revolutionary Diary. I really romanticized Cuba and the Cuban Revolution and Che's stories. So I wanted to go to Havana and experience it myself. So I 
got on a plane in the middle of my semester, went to Havana on my own while speaking a word of Spanish, which was a very eye-opening experience once I actually arrived. And I was like, oh, I don't speak this language. I don't know anything about this culture. I've never traveled as an adult on my own outside of Canada. Ended up coincidentally running into a crew of MCs, Los Sicarios crew, based out of Barachino, which is the Chinatown in central Havana. And, you know, we kicked it for a couple of weeks, got back on a plane, wrote my exams. The moment my exams were done at Ryerson, got right back on a plane, went right back to Cuba. And for the next two years, basically, on and off, I was in Havana and then sometimes in Toronto because of visa restrictions and whatnot. But basically, just hanging out with these homies who are all around the same age as me, you know, freestyling, doing shows, just hanging out, talking hip hop. And it was interesting, too, because once in a while we'd do shows and I would just freestyle the end of their song. So, you know, the homie Cobra would do a verse, the homie Donato would do a verse, they'd do the hook, and at the end, I would just jump in and freestyle whatever in English, and the crowd would go crazy. And it got me thinking that I was just this amazing, amazing rapper, when in reality, and again, this is 2004, 2005, what it was is that I was a novelty. You know, the folks in Cuba in the audience were like, whoa, this guy pretty much looks like 50 Cent. He's an American uh, rapper, and this is kind of cool. We don't understand a word he's saying, but we just like the novelty of it. But in my mind at the time, I thought I was just like that good. So I had this confidence that I shouldn't have had. Throughout this time, when I would come back to Toronto, I was getting more involved in terms of being around activist circles. And when I finally came back, a few folks pushed me to be like, hey, it's cool that you're around these spaces and talking politics. We should actually get involved. So I got involved with the War with Sisters Support Campaign and the Canada Haiti Action Network. And through both these campaigns, I ended up doing one, a solo album for the War Resisters, looking at anti-war issues and a compilation album to raise funds for the Sopudep School out in Haiti with the Canada Haiti Action Network. And then went across Canada on tour in support of the War Resisters support campaign. Where did your musical work go from there? It was really tough because one, you know, I was able to do a tour across Canada. And again, definitely wasn't at the skill level and the experience to be holding down a headlining tour nationwide at that point. But we had great opening acts with a lot of artists who wanted to support city to city, town to town that we went to. We'd also bring the soldiers out because it wasn't just about raising money, but also awareness. So we'd have a soldier speak, be like, hey, my name is Ryan. I've been to Afghanistan. This is my story. So we were able to pull off the shows and have them be a success because we had great accompanying acts who would join us, but also had the soldier stories. But for me, definitely wasn't ready for the bright lights and main stage, but we were able to pull it off. So while I had more experience than most folks with only a few years under my belt as an artist, I still wasn't honed in and hadn't perfected the craft to this level yet. So I was doing music, but I was getting really pulled into a lot of the organizing work, right? A lot of long nights at the office, a lot of go to a rally, go to another rally. So I wasn't able to really focus on the art the way I would have liked. So while the music was going well, I'd get a fair number of shows, opportunities. I wasn't growing as an artist the way I would like. So about five years ago, I reached out to one of the best MCs that I know. And I was like, hey, I kind of want to take it to that next level in terms of the music. And we sat down and started talking through my songs and talking about my approach to songwriting. One of the biggest things I took away from it is he said to me, dude, you know, we're sitting there at my place in my living room on the couch. And he's like, stop writing your song as if you're, you know, on campus giving a speech in front of 100 people. And instead, write a song as if you're sitting on the couch having a one-on-one conversation with me next to you. So about five years ago is when I made that commitment to be like, you know, my activism, my organizing is important, but my priority is going to be the art and becoming a better artist and just seeing where that takes me. And that's, I started working on the The Labor of Love album. I'm really lucky. I get to work with one of the best engineers in the country, Bronze One, 
I have a team of people supporting me who are some of the best who have ever done it in this country. And I really try to like use that collective knowledge and experience as much as possible. So I sat down with folks who were like, all right, what's a project that's going to grab people? And right away, it's like, you know, what's the one thing that almost everybody can relate to? And it's like, jobs, almost all of us go to work. You know what I mean? Be it part-time, full-time, precarious, secure employment. You know what I mean? Working class, working poor, middle class. You know, we all have jobs. You know what I mean? We all have a boss that we've hated at one point. We all get really excited the first time we ever get health and dental benefits. So the Labor Love Project was like, hey, let's share stories about all of our working lives. And it seems that over the past few years I've been sharing it, most people can get behind it for a lot of success and a lot of support, but really it's about telling our stories, right? For example, there's three sets of short little stories spread out throughout the album. And the last one is a story about a steel worker who's retiring, but then the age for retirement benefits was raised and he goes with his union and he fights back and wins and is a steel worker from Northern Ontario. Now, that's an amalgamation of many real-life stories, but specifically the one I drew from a lot was when seniors' benefits were being attacked by the Harper government, and seniors working in tandem with the Canadian Labor Congress went into conservative MP offices and just occupied those offices. That story is one of many that I took, you know, talking to people all across the country, They're like, hey, what's your story at work? And taking all those stories and putting them into an album. That's pretty much, you know, the idea behind the Labor of Love project. First an album, now it's also a touring art gallery show. It's a series of essays. It's a music video essay as well. So lots of different components to it. But really, it's just about sharing our stories and stories that we can all relate to. Let's give listeners a bit of a taste of what we're talking about here. The Labor of Love album isn't out until the fall, but let me play a little bit of a track that's out there already called Precarious Work, and then you can say a few words about it. It's time to go to work without working. It's for our chaplain, it's for Tom Morello. It's for the wobblies and the workers. What's up? Hello. It's how the dialogue of private sector pirate laws. The right to work for less is goddess and the fight for jobs. We sign a union card with pride because we're going haywire. This is the haymarket riot mob. Flipping burgers with a bachelor's degree. Serve it to you on my masters. What's the matter to me? Call me a millennial. Facebook status, Instagram addict, PlayStation, Xbox having. You tell me get a job. Okay, where's the job? You got some nerve, sir. Somewhere with all. Why think graffiti kids is trying to mark the spot? You don't think we'd rather have a pension in a parking spot? You don't understand, you must be in the dark a lot. I can't even get an interview at Target, dog. You the people? Stand up. We the people, put your hands up. Unless you in handcuffs, I wanna see you amped up. We the people, keep them hands up. You the people? Stand up. We the people, put your hands up. Unless you in handcuffs, I wanna see you amped up. We the people, keep them hands up. Working Mickey D's, what's it like there? Work at Starbucks, how's the child care? Is she babysat? Where your wages at? Rent, food, utilities, are you making that? Does your hard work seem to have an odd worth? Do your arms hurt? Does your car work? Do you ride the train across the whole city map? Spend the first two hours making that back now. How much are you worth as a whole? Does 11 bucks an hour seem a little bit low? I mean, did you even know? Did you ever think if we all walked out the stores closing in the blink? If we all called sick? Yeah, so I mean, precarious work, like I was saying with the labor album, this is stuff that we can all relate to, right? 
You work in Mickey D's, what's it like there? You work at Starbucks, how's the childcare, right? You know, we all know somebody who's struggling with childcare needs, right? We all know more than one person and more people than we'd like to know who are struggling making a minimum wage that's not a living wage. Precarious Work is a song that really just highlights all the straight up inequalities and ridiculousness that we're facing today that needs to be talked about a lot more that we all know it's like, hey, this is not sustainable, this is not okay, this is not fair, but, you know, what's going to be done about it? And the answer in the chorus is, you the people stand up, nah, we the people, put your hands up, right? And it's that, you know, we all got to come together and strengthen numbers is how we're going to fight back and win and right some of these wrongs. And I understand that you have been working on some newer material as well? Yes, so the Labor Love album will be coming out on Labor Day of this year, It's been done for two years, but because of some financial constraints, hasn't been released yet. But I'm happy happy to say that those financial issues are behind the project and the project is moving forward and it'll definitely be released. But it's been done for two years. And since then, moved on to a few other projects. Again, the theatrical stuff, the visual arts stuff. But in terms of music, I've been working on protest music, volume one, two, and three. While Labor of Love is like, hey, here's some issues, here's some music that we can all get behind, all agree on, all rally around, all be like, hey, this is great, let's bump this. Protest music is a lot more critical, where it's like, hey, here's some more complicated issues. You know, it's not black and white, it's not clearly we're all on one side, and there's a one-line slogan, like, we the people, but it's a lot more complex, a lot more tricky, a lot more contradictions. The way I always put it is, Labor of Love is reminiscent of the classic labor standard, Solidarity Forever, was protest music would be better defined by the uh, labor standard, which side are you on, right? Asking tough questions, but really asking people, it's like, yo, do you really support this? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or is it just lip service, right? The first track, I released this on SoundCloud during the last federal election. Pretty self-explanatory, but I think the point I'm trying to make is that fighting for democracy happens on more than just the one day of the year that you go out and vote. So this democracy now, and it goes well, something like this. Would you send your future son? Out to Ferguson, would you see the front line or be the first to run? Would you still rally if the battle won't be won? Ferguson, Ferguson, this goes out to Ferguson. They got me putting red up on my visa. Tell you, sky is the limit. They don't want to see us reach it. They want to keep us down. They want to keep it secret. The people, united, never be defeated. All the way at the top, they don't see it. Champagne by the leaders, all by leaders is elitist. I'm sick of broken treaties, sick of how they treat us. The people, united, will never be defeated. The power of the people, stronger than people in power. The powered by the people, we put those people in power. Hours turn to days, days into decades. We're eight to six and raise my kid, I'm living in a debt age. They paved paradise, put up a parking lot. Joni Mitchell never lied, still, the block is hot. Pipelines from the barren sea, pipes where the bear should be. We need solidarity, we need solid air to breathe. We'll reap, we reap what we sowed, we believe. So based in your years of experience of doing this work, what's your sense of how the left in Canada, broadly understood, deals with the arts? There's more support for the arts than there was 10 years ago when I started Among Movement. But we got to keep it real. A lot of it is superficial. A lot of it is that like people support the arts, organizations support the arts because they know their rank and file members want them to. If they can get away without having a performer and there won't be a backlash, they won't book a performer. Organizations want the organization to get the focus. Organizations want their talking points to get the focus. There are some organizations that do phenomenal work supporting the arts, specifically the various May Works organizations across Canada, the Workers' Arts and Heritage Center out in Hamilton. There are organizations that get it and do good work. It's just they're in the minority. 
the large majority of organizations aren't supporting the arts in the way they should be. Unfortunately, that's the majority of organizations, majority of movements that are around nowadays, and it sucks. And we need to have an honest conversation about it, right? And it's also the tokenizing aspect where it's like, yeah, you do music, cool, you know, come do some music, hype the people up, we need arts, we need to feel good, and then we'll get to the messaging. And it's like, dog, like, no, get the messaging. My messaging is more effective as a songwriter than, you know, writing your press release that nobody's going to read. And everyone's like, wow, this person's still talking at the rally after 20 minutes, you know what I mean? Versus my two minutes at a rally that actually has a lot of messaging in there. So there's a lot of tokenizing. So let's have a conversation about how to fix that. Let's have a conversation about how to open up more space for artists. But more importantly, to take a step further, how do we use the skills that artists have? And in my situation, you know, folks who write, right? I can write messages that really connect with people, that really touch people. Like you work at Mickey D's, what's it like there? You work at Starbucks, how's the child care, right? Riding a bus just so he can drive a bus for it, double shifting on the corner trying to busk for it. Those are political messages that really resonate with people. How can we as movements take advantage of that and actually be like, hey, let's make the most use out of artists. These are important questions we have to have, but also, you know, one part of that question that a lot of people want to avoid is the cult of personality, where it's like, well, this is our leader, and that leader needs to get the airtime, needs to be doing the interviews on TV, needs to be giving a 20-minute speech at a rally. And it's like, look, when you have a conversation that it's not necessarily about the individual but rather the movement and how to best push our ideas forward. And sometimes it's a band. Sometimes it's a piece of visual art that's painted or drawn or whatever, and not, you know, an interview on CBC News. That's the reality. A lot of organizations that aren't political get that. A lot of communities that aren't political get that. And we need to play catch up. Musicians need to be respected as a part by movements and do what musicians and other artists were doing in the 60s in movements. That's no longer the case. And, you know, we need to have an honest conversation about it. And what about the other side? What kinds of responses do you get to your grassroots politics, your socialist politics in hip-hop spaces? Most folks are down. The one space where you run into some issues sometimes, well, two, would be misogyny and homophobia. There's still some hip-hop heads in 2018 that don't have the respect for women and are uncomfortable with their own sexuality, and that translates into them being homophobic. But honestly, among indie artists in my community in Toronto, folks that I'm around, that's actually a small minority. Most artists are super progressive. Now, they're not political, they're not trying to be political, right? They're like, art is what I do, and we're in this long chill of political art. If you want, as an indie artist, to get a record deal, you don't want them to be scrolling through all the work you put out and find a political project because, you know, for every 10,000 of us, literally, one person will get a record deal. At 10,000 talented, qualified, experienced people, there's a record deal for one person out there and the labels don't want to see you no know, political projects. So folks aren't excited to be doing political projects, but they're progressive as hell. They're super progressive. They want to support, you know, when I'm like, hey, I want to do a benefit. I want to do a show on this issue. Who's down to perform? I never have an issue lining up artists. I'm like, hey, there's this issue that's really important. We got to talk about this. I know you care about this issue. Jump on my record and spit a verse on this political issue. Again, never have an issue with not enough people wanting to do it. So while folks don't want to lead political projects themselves, they are almost 100%, like the large majority are progressive and are down to support political projects. It's just we're not creating enough spaces. What are the key things that movements and groups and organizations can do differently in terms of relating to artists and the arts? I think it starts with the individual. And I'm not trying to be on some liberal cliche bullshit. I mean, I think this could apply. A small group of grassroots organizers doing tenant eviction in Hamilton, it can also apply to large labor affiliates in an office in downtown Toronto somewhere. 
And that is you as a person, you are working on this project and the project comes first, the movement comes first and you have a goal, but there's more happening here than just you having this goal accomplished. Yes, we have to try to stop the pipelines from being built. We have to raise the minimum wage and you have personal agency over yourself because you have ideas about what tactics and what approaches to take to get the minimum wage raise to stop Trudeau from building the pipeline. Yes, those things are important and nobody's trying to take agency away from you. But ask yourself, are your approaches, your tactics that you are taking open to artists? Again, most artists I know are more focused on trying to build their art and trying to be like one out of 10,000. They're not necessarily trying to refine all their political ideas, but again, they're progressive and they're open to it, but they might not have the same tactics and the same approaches. But how can we be a little more flexible on our tactics and our approaches to create spaces for artists and also go beyond, let's make sure artists get paid. 10 years ago, artists getting paid was way harder and artists getting paid is definitely significantly improved upon, but we got to take that next step and go beyond just let's make sure artists get paid. How can we actually make use of artists and give up that space? You want to be a speaker at a rally? How about you give up that space to an artist? How about instead of the artist performing, let the artist speak? That's insane. In 2018, it'd be an insane thing to bring up in an organizing meeting. Let's have the artist not perform, but speak instead about their experience. You know what I mean? Let's take that next step and let's do our individual level at individual organizing meetings, individual staff meetings. When you're there in that meeting and you have your goals and you have your approaches and your strategies because this is how you do it, you're like, hold up, is there a way to do it that gives me less space, that gives the folks that think that are really like-minded in my thinking less space and more space for artists? And the other one is creating spaces and opportunities. Let's talk about, you know, we have an organizing space. How do we bring in a visual artist? How do we bring in a performer? And how do we have them be part of the actual campaign? Not just somebody we call on once a year to come rap or come, you know, paint a painting. What's coming up for you as an artist as you look towards your album release in the fall? So I just did about a dozen gigs over the past two weeks over a few different cities. So for the next few months, I got a couple of events lined up, but really I'm going to be shooting some music videos for the album. So that's really all that's missing right now. Getting that last couple of songs mixed, mastered, a couple of music videos shot, very boring things. But we'll be doing a full rollout starting in early to mid-August. So the music, the art, the visuals will all start coming out. And between now and then, honestly, it's like a lot of hanging out with my kid and a lot of creating new music. Just playing in the cut, making some great art, and then hitting y'all with a ridiculous amount of art from September onwards. That's a lot of stuff that nobody's heard yet, nobody's seen yet. That's all going to be coming out in September. It looks like I'll be able to go all the way from St. John's to Victoria over the fall and winter, and I'm super excited for it. The only thing I've made a chance to talk about is the fact that my daughter is turning four in July, Amira Omir, and since August of last year, she's been rapping on stage with me whenever I have daytime shows. Want to support young artists, but also we gotta like look at the youth before they even become artists and how to support that. But I think I'll just leave y'all with this: the people united will never be defeated. The people united will never be defeated. The people united will never be defeated. You have been listening to my interview with Muhammad Ali, the socialist vocalist. To learn more about his work, look him up via at Socialist Hip Hop on all social media. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.